Thank you very much. Good morning, everybody. So, we are nearing the end of Matthew's Gospel. You've been with us in the last few months. We've been travelling through the Gospel of Matthew, one of these accounts of Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection. And we're focusing especially on some of the teaching of Jesus. Matthew has these five blocks of Jesus' teaching, and today we reach the last of those. Arguably the most difficult of those, Jesus talks about the future, and he talks about his return. There are lots and lots of debates and lots and lots of details that we can get kind of caught up in with all of this stuff. But actually the main message of what Jesus is saying in these chapters, his main purpose is really clear. Jesus wants us to be always ready for his return. Jesus wants us to live as people who are ever ready for the fact that at any moment he could be returning to earth. And what I want us to try and do as we go through these chapters today is not just to understand what Jesus is saying, but also to hear the emphasis of what he's saying. This is a topic where we can overemphasize it, we can get too worked up on it, lots of speculation, make it too big a thing. It's also a topic we can make too small a thing. We can overlook it and not think about it at all. And so the best thing for us to do is to think not just what does the Bible say, but where's the Bible's emphasis? We're going to try and hear that and try and take hold of that today. And what Jesus does here, basically, is he talks about his return, his coming, as a bit like the end of a pregnancy. At the end of a pregnancy, everything has happened that needs to happen for the baby to be born. The baby's grown in the mother's womb, and the mother's body is getting ready, the parents are getting ready, and they get to that kind of last point, the last four, five, six weeks, when at any moment, the baby could arrive. You don't know when it will be, but you know at some point, labor's going to start, the baby's going to arrive. And therefore, you live in kind of ever-readiness. You know, the bag's packed, and you've got the birthing plan done. You know where the other kids are going. The car's parked near the house, so you can get straight to the hospital. You're ever-ready, even though you've no idea when it's going to happen. But you know it is going to happen. That's kind of like how Jesus tells us to live in readiness for his return. We don't know when it'll happen, but we know that at any point it could happen. Therefore, we live ever-ready for that moment. And what Jesus does across chapters 25 and, no, 24 and 25 of Matthew is he first walks us through some teaching about the future. What's actually coming? What's going to happen? And then he tells us how we are to respond to that, how we're to live in light of that. And what I'm going to try and do is to walk us through that first section, which is where there's all these complexities and debates. We won't be able to get into too much detail, so see it as kind of a map giving us the big picture. And then we'll come to the second half and say, well, in light of that, how do we actually respond? What do we actually do? Obviously, at the end of the day, I'll be rushing off to Bexhill to go and preach there. So if you've got specific questions on the preach and the passage and this kind of topic, you're free to email me and I will get back to you when I get a chance on that. So email the office, hello at kingstain66.org. They'll pass it on to me. And when I get a chance, I'll get in contact with you so we can talk it through. So the context is that Jesus has arrived in Jerusalem. He's very nearly near the day when he's going to be handed over to the authorities and killed, just as he's told the disciples is going to happen. And since arriving in Jerusalem, he's done several things to show his judgment against the temple and against the Jewish authorities. Symbolic actions and teaching, because actually the temple and the people who run the temple weren't doing what they're meant to do, and they weren't bearing the fruit that God wanted them to bear. He passed his sentence on them, and we kind of pick up the story when Jesus leaves the temple for the last time. So let's just read the beginning of chapter 24. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, 
You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? The disciples say to Jesus, Look at the amazing grandeur of these buildings. Maybe they'd understood what he was saying. And they're trying to say, Come on, Jesus, look at the size of these things. like that's going to happen. The temple was a huge percentage of the city of Jerusalem at the time. It was undergoing a big renovation project, and it would have been incredible to look at. But Jesus tells them that regardless of how incredible it looks, every last bit of it is going to be destroyed. He's already passed sentence on the temple, and so their condemnation, their punishment is coming. And as he and the disciples settle down on the Mount of Olives, which is opposite the Temple Mount, so they're kind of looking across, they're looking at the buildings as all of this takes place, they ask him kind of about this stuff. He said, when's it going to happen? What's going to be the sign that this stuff is going to happen? Jesus has talked about the temple being destroyed, so they're saying, well, when is that going to take place? But they also want to know, what are the signs that Jesus is coming as king, coming to reclaim his position as God's ruler over all? And this is one of the reasons why this chapter is really complicated. Because the disciples link together, together the destruction of the temple and the return of Jesus. And actually what we see is Jesus teaches they're two separate things. So as we go through, we're having to ask, is Jesus talking about the temple or is Jesus talking about his return? And that's one of the big debated bits. There are different ways of answering that question. I'm going to present to you what I think is the most faithful way to the text, the clearest way of doing it. But there'll be other viewpoints I might note as we go along as well. But the really important thing is, it doesn't affect how we respond. Jesus' emphasis is not on getting all the details right, it's knowing how to live in light of the fact that he is coming back. So they ask about two things, the temple and Jesus' return. They also ask two questions, the when question and the what question. What will be the signs that this is happening, it's on its way? And Jesus starts with the second question. What will be the signs that Jesus is coming back? But actually, he doesn't really answer their question. He doesn't actually give them signs. He's not giving us things we can read to determine the time. He's not laying down for us a timetable so we can calculate what's going to happen. In fact, later, he's going to tell us nobody, only God the Father, knows when Jesus will come back. So the first important point to notice, this means that anybody who claims to know when Jesus is coming back is wrong. Nobody is God the Father, therefore nobody can know when Jesus is coming back. We can always automatically dismiss such speculations, and that's definitely not why Jesus is giving us this teaching. And the overall answer that Jesus gives, what are the signs of his coming? What's going to happen? He says that throughout the whole of the church age, that's between his first coming and his second coming, the age we live in, is going to be a time of tribulation of trials, of difficulties, and that will characterise the whole of that time. He's basically saying, this is just what this time is like. There are tribulations for the world, there are tribulations for Jesus' disciples, his followers, and tribulations for Jerusalem. And he goes through those now, step by step, talking to us a bit about each one. So first of all, he starts with the broadest perspective, what's going to happen in the world, tribulations for the world. Verse 5, he warns us there are going to be false Christs, false messiahs, people claiming to be God's anointed leader and deliverer. And we see that throughout history. Start in the book of Acts, there are people claiming to be the messiah, go right through to the modern day. 
Wikipedia lists 45 articles of people who've claimed to be God's Messiah. And they're only the famous ones. Actually, that figure would be much, much bigger. He warns of wars and of conflicts and of natural disasters, of famines and earthquakes. But all of these things, he's saying, are just part of this age in history. He explicitly says these things are not the end. They're things that happen. Just That's what happens in a broken world, a, a world damaged by human sin. But he says they're not the end. They're not signs. So when there's the threat of nuclear war, or when there's a huge earthquake, it doesn't mean Jesus is about to come back. It means that this age is just filled with tribulations, with difficulties. Jesus says, at the end of this little section, verse 8, all these things are but the beginning of the birth pains. He's basically saying these aren't signs. This is just how life is. I think it's a bit like Braxton Hicks contractions. You heard of those or practice contractions where the woman's body is getting ready for labour and stuff and it feels like labour starting. But actually that can happen for like the sixth week of pregnancy. That can characterise the whole of pregnancy. It doesn't mean that it's the sign the baby's just about to arrive. It's just how that time is. That's what Jesus is saying to us. This is just how that time is. It's full of tribulations and difficulties. So he starts with the world, the big picture, and then he comes in and he talks about his disciples, his followers. He says to them, they will also experience tribulation. He says, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. He's saying there's going to be opposition, persecution, martyrdom. Christians will be hated, will even be killed because of their allegiance to Jesus. And again, that's true of all of church history, right from the book of Acts all the way through to today. Christians around the world have been persecuted and martyred. He says, because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. He's saying that sin and rebellion against God will be so pronounced in this church age that many people actually, though they claim to love Jesus, that love will grow cold. They'll go astray and fail to follow him. But he promises that some people will endure. And those who endure, he says, those people will be saved. He's not saying that endurance earns salvation. He's not saying if you're good enough and you keep going, you earn it. He's saying that by enduring, it proves that they truly were real, genuine followers of Jesus. And the last thing he says about disciples is a bit different. All the other things have been negative things that are going to happen. The last one is a positive thing. He says, this gospel, this good news of the kingdom, will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. The good news of what God has done in Jesus will be announced to the whole of the world, and then, he says, the end can come. But actually, even though this is different, it's still not a sign allowing us to work out the time of Jesus' return. He says this will happen and then the end will come. He doesn't tell us what happens in the middle. Is that a day? Is that a million years? He doesn't link the two too closely together. And it's not clear exactly what he means. Does the whole world here mean every people group, every language, every tribe? Does it mean the known world, the world that was known about in the time of Jesus? Probably, actually, he means the latter. We're going to see that Jesus is going to tell us all these things have already taken place. So probably Jesus is saying the good news will go out to the whole of the known world of the day, which, by the end of the first century, certainly it had done. But again, he's not saying that if we get on and do this, we'll know that the next day he'll come back. It's not a timetable. It's just something that's going to happen during this period of history. So he has tribulations for the world, tribulations for disciples, 
And then finally, it's tribulations for Jerusalem. He comes in to talk about the stuff that he's been warning them, the judgment he has passed on the temple of the time. He sees it as one of the things that must happen. It's just one of the many tribulations that come in the church age. And it did happen. In 70 AD, the Romans invaded Jerusalem, destroyed the temple. That was about kind of 40 years after Jesus had been on earth. And he gives these descriptions, these warnings about what happens. And this is one of the debated bits. People, it's hard to see, is he talking just about the destruction of the temple? Or is he also talking about some of the tribulations that accompany his return? And I think at base he is talking primarily about the temple, but it's quite possible that is a picture for us of what is coming at his return as well. He warns his followers, he says, when you see the abomination of desolation standing in the holy place. The abomination of desolation is a term these guys would have known really well. They'd instantly get, well, we know what that means. It comes from the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. Daniel is one of the prophets, the mouthpieces for God. And it kind of symbolizes um, idolatry, idol worship, and the attack of God's enemies against God's people. Daniel uses it for an event that happens a few hundred years after his life in 168 BC, when a guy with a fantastic name, Antiochus Epiphanes IV, his name means God Manifest IV, he invaded Jerusalem. He erected a statue of Zeus, the Greek god, in the Jewish temple, and he slaughtered a pig on the altar of the Jewish temple, an unclean animal. This was kind of the most horrific, most offensive thing he could possibly have done. And that became this kind of symbol for the ultimate attack of God's enemies on God's people. And so when Jesus says about this scene, this abomination of desolation, he's saying, look out for the time when God's enemies attack. He's talking about the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. And he says, when this happens, his followers are going to need to run. They're going to need to flee, get out of the city. He says they won't have time to grab their favorite things from their house. They won't have time to grab the cloak they've left at the side of the field. They need to get out. For, he says, then there will be a great tribulation, such as has not been from before the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. Again, it's unclear here. Is he talking just about the destruction of the temple? Or is he also talking about the end time? Probably things are beginning to merge here. Certainly the destruction of Jerusalem was a violent, horrific event. When you look at the percentage of the population who were killed, the extent of the destruction done, it was pretty serious on a kind of world history scale. He's alluding again back to Daniel. Great tribulation is a term Daniel's used. And if you think forward in the Bible to Revelation, when John has this vision of things that are happening in heaven, he talks about the great tribulation in chapter 7. And sometimes that's understood as just before Jesus comes, there'll be this really intense period of tribulation and difficulty. But actually the context in Matthew and the context in Revelation 7 seems to suggest that, again, it's the whole of church history that's been talked about. The Bible doesn't seem to be saying that there's this really intense tribulation and then Jesus comes. It's just that all these tribulations he's talked about characterize the whole of this time that he's talking about. He's talked about the world, about disciples, about Jerusalem, and now he begins to kind of tie some pieces together. To bring a bit of a summary on these tribulations, he gives a comforting promise. He says, for the sake of the elect, for those people who are chosen by God, those who are called by God, those days will be cut short. 
And so the way that God is going to protect his people is by cutting short those days, by making the tribulation stop, by bringing Jesus back so that it comes to an end to protect and to preserve his people. And in this little summary, he warns us again of false Christs and false uh, prophets and teachers who will come. They might even perform amazing signs, he says, but don't be led astray. He's saying, don't be led astray. And especially, he says, if someone tells you that Jesus has already come back, maybe they say he's out in the wilderness, or they say he's hiding in some building, in some inner room somewhere, he says, don't believe them. Don't believe that Jesus has kind of secretly arrived. And again, this happens. Wikipedia lists 37 people who in the last few hundred years alone have claimed to be Jesus having come back to earth. And again, they'd only be the famous ones. These kind of things happen. Jesus says, don't believe it. Don't believe it, for as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. He's saying, don't believe I've secretly returned, because no one will miss when I return. When the lightning goes off, the light fills from east to west, everyone gets to see it, it fills the sky. He's saying, that's what his return, Jesus' return, will be like. You're not going to miss it. You're not going to find Jesus out in the wilderness, in in a room somewhere. Every eye will see him when he comes. So that's what Jesus answers to that sign question. There's not actually a timetable. There aren't these signs to tick off. He's saying that the whole of the time before he returns will be filled and characterized by these various different tribulations, these various difficult difficulties. And now that he's done that, he's able to turn and to talk about the end. He moves on from tribulations to the end and to his return. He says, verse 29, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. This could be symbolic language. In the Old Testament, very similar stuff is used for big acts, significant acts, especially when it's about destruction or judgment. It could be literal. It could be like literally the sun, the stars will stop shining, they'll fall out of the sky. But either way, he's saying there's this kind of cosmic sense of something hugely, hugely significant. And then, he says, will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. In the same way that Jesus ascended to heaven, he will descend to come to be on earth. Every eye will see him as he comes in God's power and in God's glory. This is the lightning. From east to west, everyone sees it. It's not secret. It's not hidden. Everyone sees when Jesus returns. It's what's sometimes called the personal and visible return of Jesus. That's how the ancient creeds talk about it. It's personal. It's him in his body, his incarnated form, and it's visible. Everybody gets to see it. And then he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect, his people, from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Elsewhere we learn, elsewhere in the Bible we learn, what Jesus is saying here is that at this point, all the dead are raised to life, and God's people meet with him. God's people go and be with Jesus. It's really important to pause here and point out that this is not talking about the rapture. The idea of the rapture is not biblical teaching. It's not taught in the Bible. It's a theological system created a few hundred years ago. The rapture suggests that there are two returns of Jesus. Jesus comes first secretly with no one seeing him and he takes out of the world Christian believers 
so that they miss the great tribulation. They're with him, safe in heaven. The great tribulation happens on earth, and then he comes a second time, visibly everyone sees, and then the new age comes. That's not biblical teaching. And in fact, that explicitly contradicts what Jesus has just said. He's just said, don't believe it, if people say, I've secretly come back. He's just said, believers will live through this tribulation. That's why he brings it to an end, to preserve the elect, to save his elect. The rapture is not biblical teaching. That's not what he's talking about. There's one return of Jesus, visible and personal. Every eye will see him, and then the end comes. And as he sums up this section on what's coming, Jesus gives us a little illustration, a little lesson, to help us understand how to think about this. And he picks on a fig tree to teach us. He says, with the fig tree, as soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. The fig tree in Jesus' country of the time was one of the very few non-evergreen plants. So it lost its leaves. But as soon as the leaves began to appear on the branches, you knew that summer was literally just around the corner. It was the thing which heralded, which announced, demonstrated the arrival of summer. He says, so also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near. He's at the very gates. He's saying, when you see all these tribulations of the church age, of this age that he's talked about, you know that Jesus is near. He's at the gates. He's getting ready to come back. And he says, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. This is a difficult verse. Is Jesus saying that he's going to come back while this generation he's talking to is still alive? Because if he was, then he was wrong. Because we are many, many, many generations later and Jesus has not returned. Well, Jesus wasn't wrong. Some people you will hear say here, they say, it doesn't actually mean generation, it means race. So some people say it means the Jewish people will not pass away until Jesus comes back, which is a nice try to get Jesus off the hook, but it's a very bad reading of the Greek. What Jesus is saying is that these things, these tribulations, will all have taken place before these guys die. And notice in the previous verse, he said these things show that Jesus is at the very door. He's on his way. That means that these things cannot include the return of Jesus. These things are the things that become before the return of Jesus and show the return of Jesus is coming. He's saying that all the things that need to happen before he can return will have happened by the time this generation have died out. And that's true. By the end of the first century, there's persecution, there's natural disasters, the temple has been destroyed. All these things happen. There's wars and conflicts. That means that Jesus can appear at any time. And that seems to be the consistent message of the New Testament. The rest of the New Testament gives some other things that will happen before Jesus comes, but it's perfectly plausible that they have already happened. And the New Testament teaches us Jesus could come back at any point, and therefore we are to live in ever-readiness for that point. That's what Jesus wants us to understand, what he wants us to learn about the future. There's a day when he will come back, Every eye will see him. And that could happen at any moment. And therefore, what you and I need to do is to live in ever readiness, ever prepared for that day. So he rounds off the section on what's coming. He's kind of helped us to get there to understand that. And now he turns and he says, well, if that's the case, what do you do about it? How do you live? And this is the point if you switched off because we've just gone through a lot of material to wake up because this is the really important bit of what we actually need to do. He draws out in the rest of chapter 24 and 25 the, uh, the teaching on what it means to be ready for his return. He 
starts by reminding us no one knows when it's going to happen. But, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. Although he's just said that all these events show he's just around the corner, that by the end of the first century it could happen at any moment, he's also telling us no one knows when it will happen. Only God the Father knows when it will happen. He says, therefore, verse 44, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. He says, be ready. Be prepared. Live in ever readiness. It's like the end part of the pregnancy. Any point the baby could come, let's be ready. And so what does readiness look like? So we're all saying it, but how do we actually do that? How do we actually live that out? Well, Jesus now gives us four stories, four kind of parables, illustrations, each of which shows us a different element of what it means to live in readiness. And as we go through these, I'm going to kind of summarize them, draw out the point, just have your heart opened, which one or couple maybe of these is God speaking to me about today? In what area of my life am I not living in readiness for Jesus' return? Let him speak to you so that you can respond to him today. First of all, he tells us a story about a faithful servant and a wicked servant. There's a master of a house who uh, goes away and he's looking for one of his senior servants to look after the other servants and look after the house and his business and stuff. He puts a couple of them in charge, gives them a chance. One of them does a really good job. He looks after the servants, he feeds them, he looks after the house, does a great job. And when the master comes back, he's thrilled with him and he blesses him and he rewards him. But there's also a wicked servant. And the wicked servant thinks, I know the master's not coming back anytime soon. I know I've got plenty of time on my hands. And he uses that opportunity to abuse the other servants and to engage in all kind of immoral stuff and not to do well with the stuff that the master has given him. And when the master comes back, unexpectedly, the master judges this uh, servant. And Jesus tells us he sends him to a place where there will be weeping and there will be gnashing of teeth. The lesson here is that being ready for Jesus' return means seeking to live rightly and seeking to serve other people. It's not living wickedly, thinking, well, you know, Jesus isn't coming back yet, I'm going to do what I like with my life. No, no, it's living rightly, living God's way, and it's not thinking, well, I can do what I want to other people because Jesus isn't here yet. No, no, it's serving other people. He says, actually, living wickedly, abusing other people, will only result in judgment and punishment when he comes back. He's looking for us to live his way. And for those who live his way, there will be wonderful, wonderful blessing. The next story, the second point at the beginning of chapter 25 is the parable of the ten virgins. Or in our kind of parlance, in our way of thinking of it, these are basically equivalent to bridesmaids. They're friends of the bride waiting for the groom to arrive. So these bridesmaids are there waiting for the groom to arrive. And uh, they take with them some oil lamps. It's night time. They need some light. They've got oil lamps. Five of them take extra oil for when they burn up what they've got, and five of them don't. And unexpectedly, the groom is delayed. He's longer than they expect, and they all kind of fall asleep because they're waiting around. But then suddenly, the announcement of the groom is, or the arrival of the groom is announced. And they wake up, and the five who had no extra oil find they haven't got enough oil for their lamps. And so they turn to those who took extra. They said, oh, give us some of your extra oil to put on our lamps. But they don't have enough to be able to share with the other five. So the five without go off. They go off to the shops to get some more oil. But by the time they've got back, the groom has arrived. He's gone into the wedding feast. The door is shut and is locked. And they are stuck outside. 
The lesson that Jesus is trying to teach us through this parable is that being ready means making our own choice to follow Jesus and doing it now. Friends, there are no second chances when Jesus returns. It's too late at that point to choose to respond to him, to choose to be a follower of him. The door will be closed. It will be too late. And we can't get in based on somebody else's following of Jesus. We can't borrow someone else's oil to light our lamp. We have to make our own choice, and we have to make it before Jesus comes back. Only Jesus, actually, can make you prepared. Only he can give you the oil, the perfection that you need to be worthy of eternity with him. And he can only do that if you individually choose to respond before he comes back. Being ready means making your own choice and choosing to follow Jesus. He then tells us another story. Again, it's a man going away. A lot of irresponsible masters going away in Jesus' stories. He's got a load of stuff, property, money, businesses, and so he shares out between three different servants. And he's expecting them to use this stuff well, to invest and to steward it well, to run the businesses, basically to get a return, get more money in. So he goes away, he comes back, and two of the servants have done exactly that. They've stewarded the stuff they've been given really well, and the guy uh, praises them and rewards them. But there's one of them who was actually so scared of the master, he didn't use the stuff and invest it or do anything with it. He buried it to keep it safe, keep it out of the way. He didn't do what the master wanted. And when the master comes back, he is displeased with his servant, and he casts him out, Jesus tells us, into the outer darkness. The lesson that Jesus is teaching us here is that being ready, living ever ready for his return, means using our abilities and our time and our resources, the things that God has given us, using them well. It's not sitting around inactive thinking, well, Jesus will be back soon. I'm not going to do anything. I'm just going to wait around until it happens. It's taking hold of what God has given us, using it, stewarding it well, using it to do the good works that God has prepared beforehand for us to do, using it to advance his kingdom, using it to bless other people. And this is the opposite of what some people say. Some people do kind of say, well, let's just go off to a desert somewhere, get away from all these sinful people, go and live on our own, not do much, and wait till Jesus turns up. That's exactly the opposite of what Jesus is telling us to do. He said, I've given you opportunities. I've given you responsibilities. You get to do stuff that makes a difference. You get to take hold of the stuff I've given. Steward it well to do my work. And then finally, the last story is actually a little bit different. It's not quite a parable, and it's not about the unexpected return of Jesus. It's about what happens after Jesus returns. But by telling us what happens then, it teaches us how to live now. It's the story of the sheep and the goats. It's the scene of final judgment. Jesus comes, and Jesus sits on the throne of judgment. And all people are brought before him. But all people actually are either a sheep or a goat. And Jesus sticks the sheep on one side, and he sticks the goats on the other side. And to the sheep, he praises them for caring for him, and are looking after him, and feeding him, and giving him water, and visiting him when he was in prison. How do they do that? They did that by doing that for Jesus' followers. And so these guys, he says, he welcomes them in to come into eternal life with him. But then on the other side, the goats have not done these things. They've not cared for Jesus, not fed him, not watered him, not visited him in prison. And how have they not done it? They've not done it by not doing it for his followers. 
And these people, Jesus says, get sent off into eternal punishment. Notice, really importantly, the sheep have not earned their position in eternal life. Sheep and goats are different. You can tell them, well, farmers, I'm sure, can tell them apart. They're completely different beings. And the way they have lived has flown from the fact they're a sheep. And the way the goats have lived is flown from the fact they're a goat. So Jesus isn't saying, try harder, do better. He's saying, be transformed. You're a goat, but you need to become a sheep. And only Jesus can do that. Coming to Jesus means being reborn giving a totally new life, a totally new identity from which flows the right living that he wants. He's saying that being ready for his return means becoming a sheep. It means trusting in Jesus so that he gives you new life, new birth, and then living out that new identity in the form of right living, which includes the care of God's people for God's people. So, Hopefully you're still with me. Let's come and tie together all the different strands of what Jesus has been saying to us. Jesus is coming back. One day, we don't know when he's coming, and all the time between his first coming and that time will be characterized by great tribulations, difficulties, trials in the world for disciples for Jerusalem in 70 AD. Many people will be led astray during this time. We need to watch out for what's going on. We need to stand firm, be rooted firmly and strongly in God, knowing what his word says, drawing close to him. And there'll come a day when Jesus comes, every eye will see him. And then every person will stand before him, giving account for their life as they stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Jesus tells us that everything that needs to happen before that day comes has already happened. It has already taken place Jesus could come back at any moment. We can't know when, and therefore, we live ever ready. So that whenever it comes, we are ready. We are living as God would have us to live. To be ready means to live rightly. Standing firm and serving not ourselves, but serving other people. To be ready means to make our own choice to follow Jesus. Not waiting to that point as if we get a chance there. Not kind of depending on a, a friend or a partner or a parent. We make our own choice. I'm going to follow Jesus. Being ready means taking hold of the time, the resources, the abilities that God has given you. Using them well. Stewarding them for God's purposes and to bless other people. And it means living out a new identity from which we love and care for God's people. And so the challenge for us that Jesus, I believe, would bring to us today is, are we living ready? Are we ready for his return? How would you feel if Jesus came back this afternoon? How would you feel if he came back later this week, next weekend, next month? Would you regret how you've been living? Would you regret living for yourself, not for others? Regret not using your abilities well? Uh, Regret not making your own decision to trusting him? Regret not asking him to move you from a goat to a sheep to transform you so that you can live his way? Friends, it's time to be ready. It's time to respond to that so that we can join with God's people in his word, praying, come, Lord Jesus. That should be a prayer we pray with excitement and anticipation. Could we say, Jesus, we're ready. And Jesus, we know it's good when you come back. Can I invite the band to come back up, please? Maybe you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus. Maybe you've never chosen to take that step. Maybe you're just not quite sure if you've chosen to take that step. Friend, today Jesus is inviting you to come to him. Maybe we're here today and you've realised that you're a goat who's headed for eternal punishment. 
Well, friend, the good news is that Jesus wants to give you new birth. He can make you a sheep who from the core of your being can do his work. And so on that day, he says, come, welcome into eternal life. If that's you, what do you do? That means acknowledging I've been walking my own way, going in the wrong direction, rebelling against God, living for myself, not for him. But I'm going to choose to recognize that's wrong, to stop, to turn 180 degrees, as we call repentance, and instead to live God's way. And as we do that, we're saying, I know I'm not worthy of doing this. I know, God, I'm not worthy of being accepted. But we know that God has promised to forgive us and promised to accept us. If that's you this morning, you can respond in your own heart as we worship in just a moment. And do make sure you grab someone. There'll be some guys at the front who'd love to talk with you and pray with you at the end. Maybe you're here today and you're a follower of Jesus. God may be challenging you on some of those points of, are you living in ever readiness for his return? Those four stories he tells us, those four things he's giving us, are those what are characterizing your life and the way you're living. Maybe today there's one or more of those that he's challenging you on, where he wants you to change. What we're going to do now is we're going to sing a song, a chance for us to engage with God to respond to this. If you've got children in energy or in tops, please go collect them during that point so they can join us for um, bread and wine, which we'll then take afterwards as we respond to this. So can I invite you to stand? Let me quickly pray for us, then we'll sing and do that. Father, thank you that one day Jesus will come back. That that is a glorious day when your wonderful plan will be brought to completion. That on that day, the new age, where everything wrong is put right, comes into being. And we say, as your people, we want to live in ever readiness for that day. Help us today to hear what you've said to us in your word, in this teaching. Challenge us, uh, highlight things to us, we pray. Help us to respond and to change today. And help us to be able to pray that prayer. Oh, come Lord Jesus. Because we know we're living in readiness. And we know it's a wonderful day. Come and speak to us and work in us. We ask Jesus. Amen.